بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respected listeners assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh inshallah today i'll be speaking on the famous hadith related by Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim and others from a number of different companions and this hadith is famously known as Hadith of Jibreel the Hadith of Jibreel this is actually the first hadith of Sahih Muslim and I'll be relating the hadith primarily from Sahih Muslim but commenting on it from all the other collections of hadith too. So I relate, وَبِسَّنَدِ الْمُتَّصِلِ مِنِّي إِلَى الْإِمَامِ مُسْلِمٍ رَحِمَهُ اللَّهِ قَالَ رَوَى الْحَدِيثَ عَنْ إِبْنِ عُمَرَ وَهُوَ يَرْوِيهِ عَنْ أَبِي عُمَرَ بْنِ الْخَطَّابِ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ قال بينما نحن عند رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ذات يوم اطلع علينا رجل شديد بياض الثياب شديد سواد الشعر لا يرى عليه أثر السفر ولا يعرفه منا أحد حتى جلس إلى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فأسند ركبتيه إلى ركبتيه ووضع كفيه على فخذيه وقال يا محمد أخبرني عن الإسلام قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم الإسلام أن تشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وأن محمد رسول الله وتقيم الصلاة وتبطي الزكاة وتصوم رمضان وتحج البيت إن استطعت إليه سبيلا قال صدقت قال فعجبنا له يسأله ويصدقه قال فأخبرني عن الإيمان قال أن تؤمن بالله وملائكته وكتبه ورسله واليوم الآخر وتؤمن بالقدر خيره وشره قال صدقت قال فأخبرني عن الإحسان قال أن تعبد الله كأنك تراه فإن لم تكن تراه فإنه يراك قال فأخبرني عن الساعة قال من المسؤول عنها بأعلم من السائل قال فأخبرني عن أمارتها قال أن تلد الأمة ربتها وأن ترى الحفاة العرات العالة رعاء الشاء يتطاولون في البنيان قال ثم انطلق فلبثت مليا ثم قال لي يا عمر أتدري من السائل قلت الله ورسوله أعلم 
قال فإنه جبريل أتاكم يعلمكم دينكم أو كما قال صلى الله عليه وسلم That's the Arabic text of the hadith from Sahih Muslim. I relate with an uninterrupted and continuous chain from me to Imam Muslim, rahimahullah, who, say, who relates from Abdullah ibn Umar, radiyallahu anhuma, who relates from his father, Umar ibn Khattab, radiyallahu anhu, who says, whilst we were seated by the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, one day, when a man appeared over us, A man of extremely white clothes and extremely black hair. There was no sign of journeying on him and none of us recognised him or knew him. So he came until he sat by the Prophet and then brought his knees or he lent his knees on the knees of the Messenger and he placed his hands on his thighs. Then he said, O Muhammad, tell me about Islam. So the Prophet said, Islam is that you bear testimony that there is no God except Allah and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah and that you establish salah and you give zakah and that you fast the month of Ramadan and that you perform the pilgrimage of the house if you are able to find a way to it. So Umar said, the man said, you have spoken the truth. So we marveled at him that he asks the Prophet ﷺ and then ratifies his answer. The man then said, inform me or tell me about Iman. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Iman is that you believe in Allah and in his angels and in his books and in his messengers and that you believe in Qadr in destiny, both good and bad. So the man said, you have spoken the truth or correctly. He then said, tell me about Ihsan. So the Prophet said, Ihsan is that you worship Allah as though you see him. Then if you do not see him, then indeed he sees you. The man then said, tell me about the final hour of judgment. So the Prophet said, the one who is being questioned has n- is no more knowledgeable of this than the questioner himself. So the man said, well then inform me of its signs. So the Prophet said, that meaning the signs are that a maid will give birth to her master, and that you shall see 
barefooted, unclothed, poor, shepherds, competing with one another in the construction of buildings. Umar says, the man then left. And then I waited for a while. Then the Prophet said to me, Oh Umar, do you know who the questioner was? So I said, Allah and his messenger know best. So the Prophet said, Indeed, he was Jibreel. He came to you to teach you your religion. Now that's just a quick translation of the hadith from Sahih Muslim. But this was one famous incident and many Sahaba عنهم, have related the same incident as is recorded by many authors in different books of hadith. And from the whole collection of narrations we come to a more comprehensive picture of what actually happened on that occasion. This is just one narration, but this is probably the most famous narration from Umar ibn Khattab Otherwise, the hadith has been related from Abdullah ibn Umar, the son himself, the father Umar ibn Khattab, from Abu Hurairah from Abu Dhar al-Ghifari from Anas ibn Malik, from Abdullah ibn Abbas, from Jarid ibn Abdullah al-Bajali, from Abu Amir, from all of these Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, again recorded by all different authors. So what actually happened on the day is that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was seated outside with the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. And the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum relates that previously the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would sit down amongst the Sahaba, in between them. So when a stranger came, who never knew the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he wouldn't be able to tell who the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was, amongst all the companions. So the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum suggested to him, though, Messenger of Allah, why don't we build you some seat or a platform, a raised platform, so that when people come, they can recognize you? So the Sahaba built him a raised platform. And from that time onwards, Rasulullah would actually sit on there. And when people arrived, they would know who he was, since he was seated above all of the companions. This isn't the mimbar. This is just, in general, something other than the mimbar. Because this incident of Jibreel alayhi salam coming, this actually took place right towards the end of the Prophet life. 
So in a way, it's as though, it's, it's as though all the things covered in the hadith, Jibreel came once again to ratify all of these teachings of religion in one single sitting. And indeed, it's a great hadith because the ulama have always regarded this hadith as being one of the greatest hadith of Islam. Some have gone to the extent of saying that all of the teachings of religion stem from this one hadith. And this hadith covers everything. This is why we title the talk Islam, Iman and Ihsan, since all three topics are covered. And these three, Islam, Iman and Ihsan, more or less cover a servant's relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some ulama have gone to the extent of beginning their books with this particular hadith, just as Imam Muslim has done, and other ulama too. They've made it a point of starting their books of hadith with this particular hadith known as the hadith of Jibreel. So on that occasion, which took place right towards the end of the Prophet Wasallam's life, Sahaba radiyallahu anhum was seated with the Prophet وسلم, and he was on a raised platform. And this is where the ulama say that there is no harm. And in fact, one would be following in the footsteps of the Messenger وسلم, if the teacher, the one who is teaching, preaching and imparting religious knowledge is seated on a, on a raised platform whilst the others are seated below. This is exactly what the Sahaba did with the Prophet So he was seated on a raised platform with the companions around him. And the Prophet said to them, ask me. But no one raised any questions. And the wording is of the hadith, they were too filled with awe and they were overwhelmed so they could not question the Messenger In fact, this was very true. I'll, what I will do, I'll provide a comprehensive account of the incident itself, then I'll comment on the different parts. So the Prophet was seated on a raised platform. He told the Sahaba, عنهم, ask me, question me. But the companions were too filled with awe and too overwhelmed to question him. So they remained silent. When all of a sudden a man arrived, and from the distance the Sahaba عنهم, looked at him and nobody recognized him. And the reason we know that, as Umar says, that لا يرى عليه أثر السفر, that there was no sign of journeying on him. So he wasn't someone who came from out of the city because his clothes were extremely white and the hair of his head and his beard was intensely black. And in one hadith, a man arrived who, out of all the people, had the most handsome and beautiful face. And out of all the people, he was most fragrant. And his clothes were intensely white, his hair of head and beard was intensely black. But, and there was no sign of travelling on him. So it was obvious he never came from out of the city. 
but then no, no one even recognized him. And that's evident from the fact that the Sahaba عنهم, began looking at one another, and just as we sometimes, without saying a word, they simply signaling to one another and raising their eyes to one another, they questioned one another as to who this individual was, but nobody recognized him. He then came, and when he arrived at the edge of the gathering, he loudly said, Assalamu alaykum, ya Muhammad. That, Assalamu alaykum, O Muhammad. Then he said to him, Can I come closer? So the Prophet wasallam said, Yes. So he began, since the Sahaba would be seated closely together, he began walking over people's shoulders and backs and breaking the ranks and moving forward. And the closer he would get, he would say to the Prophet wasallam, Oh Muhammad, can I come closer? So the Prophet wasallam said yes. Eventually, he came and sat in front of the Messenger wasallam. So close that فَأَسْنَدَ رُكْبَتَيْهِ إِلَىٰ رُكْبَتَيْهِ He joined his knees with the knees of the Messenger And then he placed his hands on his own knees first. And he sat in the manner of the shahud. So just as we sit in salah, he sat in that manner in front of the Messenger Then he leant forward and he actually placed his hands on the noble knees of the Messenger and then he said to him, O Muhammad, tell me about Islam. So the Prophet said, Islam is that you bear testimony that there is no God except Allah and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And that you establish salah, you give zakah, you give the obligatory zakah. And that you fast the month of Ramadan and that you travel to the house of Allah. You perform the pilgrimage of the house if you are able to find a way to it. And then in some narrations, other things are mentioned too along with this, such as that you do Umrah, that you complete your wudu, that you do ghusl of Janabah. Then the man said another thing is that no one, not even the Messenger recognized who he was. That's actually mentioned clearly in another hadith where the Prophet says that never would Jibreel come to me except that I knew who he was and I recognized him immediately except on this occasion. I did not recognize him until right towards the end. So the man said, Sadaqt, you have spoken the truth, you have spoken correctly. So the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. In fact, before that, the man said, So, if I do all of these things, am I a Muslim? So the Prophet said, Yes. So the man said, You have spoken correctly. Sahaba radiyallahu anhum marveled at him that he questions him, then he ratifies the answer. Then the man said, tell me about Iman. 
So the Prophet said, Iman is that you believe in Allah and in his angels, in his books, in his messengers, in the final day, in the resurrection, and that you believe, and in the meeting of Allah, and that you believe in Qadr, both good, bad, sweet, bitter, and that all of this Qadr is from Allah. So the man again said, you've spoken the truth. Tell me about Ihsan. So the Prophet said, Ihsan is that you worship Allah as though you see him. And if you do not see him, that then that he certainly sees you. Again, the man said, you've spoken the truth. Tell me about the final hour. When is the final hour? So the Prophet said, the one who is being questioned has no more knowledge of this than the questioner himself. But I can tell you about its prerequisites and the signs leading up to the final hour. So the man said, indeed, tell me. So the Prophet said that a maid, a woman, will give birth to her master and that you will see barefooted, unclothed, poor, camel herders, shepherds of flocks, competing with one another in the construction of buildings. Then the man rose, turned around and left. So the Prophet said to the Sahaba call him back. So the Sahaba rose to actually follow him, but he had disappeared. They couldn't find him, no one could find him. Then Umar what had happened is that Umar had left just as a man had left. So this is why he says in the hadith that the Prophet I waited for a while. How long did he wait? He actually waited three days. Three days later the Prophet told him, Oh Umar, do you know who that was? So he said, Allah and his messenger know best. So the Prophet said, that was Jibreel who came to teach you your religion, who came to teach the people your religion. And in one narration, that was Jibreel. He came to teach you because you wouldn't ask. Since you wouldn't ask, he came to teach you your religion. So this is the incident. Now allow me to comment on different parts of it. So from the beginning, the Prophet ﷺ was seated with the Sahaba عنهم, as Abu Hurairah and Abu Dhar al-Ghifari both say in their hadith that the Prophet ﷺ would normally sit amongst the Sahaba right in the middle. Newcomers, strangers wouldn't recognize him. So that when they would come, they would actually search for the Prophet ﷺ and not know who he was. So the Sahaba suggested to the Prophet that they should build a raised platform and they did and from that moment onwards the Messenger would sit 
on that raised platform with the Sahaba عنهم, around him. Whilst he was seated, he said to them, question me, ask me. Sahaba عنهم, were too filled with awe and overwhelmed to question the messenger. This was something well known about the companions. In fact, some of the Sahaba عنهم, like Abdullah ibn Abbas عنهم, relate that the number of times people questioned the Messenger was very few. There weren't that many. Even though the Prophet made himself very endearing to them, very appealing to them, and tried to open up to them as much as possible, and that was part of his humility, he would sit in the middle of them. It was only when they suggested that we should raise you on a raised platform did the Prophet actually adopt that sitting position. Otherwise, in his humbleness and humility and simplicity, he would just sit in the middle of the Sahaba. So despite making himself so open, so approachable, so available to the Sahaba, they respected him. And as part of that respect, they were filled with awe, in fact, fear. It said that the Sahaba عنهم, when they would sit in a gathering and the Prophet وسلم, would arrive, none of the Sahaba ever looked up at him in such a way that their eyes met with the eyes of the Messenger. They say only two people would actually look up and their eyes would meet with the eyes of the Prophet وسلم, and those two people were the Shaykhan, Abu Bakr and Umar because they held a unique position and they were both his fathers-in-law. So only they would actually look at him full face with eyes locking, with eyes meeting. Otherwise the other Sahaba عنهم, they were too fearful, too filled with awe to even raise their gaze at him and lock eyes with the Messenger They would actually steal glances at him. That was out of sheer respect. And part of that respect was that they wouldn't question him. They wanted to ask questions. And that's why they secretly, as some of the Sahaba say, we secretly would wish that some Bedouin would come along and question the Messenger وسلم, because the Bedouin were Bedouin. They would come, they would speak in a very unrefined manner and they would say what they wanted. And the Prophet ﷺ would tolerate it. But the Sahaba even though they knew that the Messenger ﷺ would never be offended, he would never be offended. Still, sheer respect, love and reverence for the Messenger ﷺ ensured that they would not throw questions at him. Hardly. So on this occasion too, he actually said to them, ask me. Nobody asked. So they sat in silence when suddenly a man appeared. And as was described in the hadith, he was extremely handsome, wearing 
very white clothes, intense of intense black hair, the most handsome of all the people, the most fragrant of all the people. So here was someone very different, very unique. Now if someone came, the Sahaba wouldn't look at each other saying, who's this? They would be sat with their gaze to the ground. In fact, it's mentioned that the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, the Sahaba themselves mentioned, that when they would be seated around the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, it would be as though birds were perched on their heads. That's how still, respectful and silent they were before the Messenger alayhi salatu wa salam. It was as though birds could be perched on their heads. So it was only on this occasion that there was a sudden commotion because the man was very different. He obviously wasn't a traveller because there was not a single speck of dust or a mark on his clothes. Pure white clothes, pure black hair, fragrant even from a distance, strikingly handsome, yet nobody knew him. So all the Sahaba began looking at one another. And when he arrived at the edge of the gathering, the truth is he didn't even say salam to the whole gathering. He just said salam only to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he said assalamu alayka ya Muhammad. He said assalamu alayka ya Muhammad. Everyone actually thought he was a Bedouin but a very strange one because again his mannerisms were exactly those of the Bedouin. He ignored the rest of the gathering, spoke directly to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and said assalamu alayk. Not even assalamu alaykum. Assalamu alayk O Muhammad. Can I come close? Prophet said yes. So without pause, without waiting, he just started climbing over everyone's shoulders and breaking the ranks. And the closer he would get, he kept on saying, can I come closer? Can I come closer? Prophet said yes. He came and sat down. Then he played. Even though he did all of this, because everything was contradictory, he had Bedouin manners. In some ways, but not in other ways. So when he came and sat down, he sat down in the state of tashahud. Just like a person sits in tashahud salah. In salah, in tashahud. Since we know now, retrospectively, that this was Jibreel alayhi salam who came to teach religion. All of this was to do with religion. And one of the things he taught is respect. See, initially he kept on saying Muhammad, but once he came and sat down and said Muhammad the first few times, he then actually began addressing the Messenger of Allah as Ya Rasulullah. And when he sat down, he sat down respectfully. And he placed his hands on his knees in the manner of tashahud, of salah. Then he leant forward and placed his hands on the knees of the Messenger That was an act of submission. In many of the hadith we learn that the Sahaba they would sit on their knees and lean forward. Because amongst the Arabs, this was a sign of submission, of humility. Like on one occasion when the Prophet said, ask me. And he was angry. So people began asking unnecessary questions. And the Prophet ﷺ was getting angrier and angrier. 
Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu an immediately recognized that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam is displeased, he is angry. And when he is saying, ask me, it's actually a warning because of his anger that don't ask me in this state. So Umar radiyallahu an, he raised himself and sat forward, leant forward on his knees and said, Radina billahi rabba wa bil islam deena wa bi muhammadin rasoola. That we are content with Allah as our Lord, with Islam as our religion, and with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as our messenger. And he appeased the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's anger subsided. So this leaning forward, sitting on one's knees, was an act of submission and humility. And that's what Jibreel alayhi salam did. He leant forward, placed his hands on the knees of the Messenger alayhi salam, and submitted himself. This is why the ulama say that you can never gain knowledge without humility, without respect. Allah himself says in the Quran, سَأَصْرِفُ عَنْ آيَاتِيَ الَّذِينَ يَتَكَبَّرُونَ فِي الْأَرْضِ بِغَيْرِ الْحَقِّ That I will turn away from my sons, those who are arrogant upon the earth without just cause. And then Allah continues, وَإِنْ يَرَوْ كُلَّ آيَةٍ لَا يُؤْمِنُوا بِهَا وَإِنْ يَرَوْ سَبِيلَ الرُّشْدِ لَا يَتَّخِذُوهُ سَبِيلًا وَإِنْ يَرَوْ سَبِيلَ الْغَيَّ يَتَّخِذُوهُ سَبِيلًا That they will never believe even though they see every sign. In fact, as a result of their arrogance, they become so delusional that if they see the path of righteousness, they do not take it as a path. And if they see the path of waywardness, they actually adopt that as a path. They become so delusional that they see truth where there is falsehood, falsehood where there is truth. And, and so on. That is the result of arrogance. So Allah himself warns that those who are arrogant, I will turn them away from my signs. Look at the wording. Allah doesn't say, I will turn away my signs from those who are arrogant. No. Allah's signs are there. Allah's proofs are there. Allah's evidences are there as they are. Bright and glamorous, glaring and self-evident. But those who are arrogant, Allah will turn them away. Just as Allah says of Yusuf alayhi salam, كَذَلِكَ لِنَصْرِفَ عَنْهُ السُّوءَ Allah says, I don't so that we may. Allah doesn't say so that we may turn him away from evil and from immorality and indecency. Rather, Allah says, so that we may turn away from him immorality and indecency and sin. He is who he is, how he is, where he is. His position doesn't change. But we turn away evil from him. Similarly here, Allah says, Allah's evidences, Allah's signs and his proofs are where they are. We turn people, arrogant people, away from them. They are as they are. So arrogance makes a person blind to the signs of Allah. 
And such a person will never be able to gain any knowledge or understanding. They may gain information, but no true knowledge. Because it's only humility that can lead to respect. An arrogant person doesn't respect anyone. And without respect, without humility, a person can't gain knowledge. And there's a difference between true knowledge, ilm, and information, ma'lumat. One's head may be crammed with facts and figures and statistics and even verses and hadith. But if there is no humility in the heart, no respect in the heart, that knowledge, that information will not translate into anything. This is why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would say, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min ilmin la yanfa'. O oh Allah, I seek protect your protection and refuge in you from knowledge which does not benefit. Even the Messenger of Allah sought refuge in Allah from such knowledge. So respect has always been part of the tradition of learning. Always. Imam Shafi'i, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal says that I never drank water in the presence of my teacher Shafi'i. Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah says that I would never stretch my legs towards the house of my teacher, Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman, even though between my house and his house there were seven streets. Now some people may say that what kind of extremist, what kind of extreme respect is that? Well, those who say that, this is why Abu Hanifa is Abu Hanifa and you are who you are. <laughs> Respect has always been part of the tradition of Islam, especially in knowledge. So Jibreel alayhi salam, he showed utmost submission and humility. Even though he came the way he came, he leant forward, placed his hands on the knees of the Messenger وسلم, and then said to him, tell me about Islam. So the Prophet وسلم, mentioned the articles of faith. Sorry. The Prophet وسلم, on this occasion said, الإسلام أن تشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وأن محمد رسول الله وتقيم الصلاة وتؤتي الزكاة وتصوم رمضان وتحج البيت إن استطعت إليه سبيلا. The five pillars. Islam is that you testify that there is no God except Allah and that Muhammad is a messenger of Allah. And that you establish salah, you give zakah, you fast the month of Ramadan, and you perform the pilgrimage of the house if you are able to find a way to it. And this is very similar to the other hadith related by Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim, from actually the son of Umar ibn Khattab, and Abdullah ibn Umar. Most famous hadith, al-Islam ala khamsin. Shahadati Allah ilaha illallah wa anna Muhammad al-Rasulullah wa iqami salati wa ita'i zakat wa sawmi ramadana wa hajj al-bayt and in some narrations wa hajj wa sawmi ramadan that Islam is established or Islam is built and predicated on five things 
the testimony that there is no God except Allah and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah and the establishing of salah, the giving of zakah Hajj, in this particular narration of Bukhari Wal Hajj and Hajj Wasawmi Ramadan and the fast of Ramadan These are the five pillars of Islam Now I won't go into any of the laws and the details These are huge topics But even before a person can reach the higher grades mentioned later in the hadith of Iman, of true faith, of Ihsan, one has to begin here. One has to begin with submission and with the testimony of the tongue. What does Islam mean? A common Definition is Islam is peace. Yes, Islam is about peace, without doubt. But linguistically, the word Islam doesn't mean peace in itself, it means submission. Aslam and Yuslim or Islam means to submit. فَهَلْ أَنْتُمْ مُسْلِمُونَ So will you submit? Islam means submission. And the first sign of submission to who? Submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the first sign of submission is that you bear testimony that there is no God except Allah and that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is the messenger of Allah. If someone claims belief in Allah, claims belief in the Prophet by heart, or claims to be a Muslim, i.e. someone who submits to the will and the command of Allah, yet they are unable to make even a verbal submission or even submit themselves to this extent that they are willing to testify publicly that there is no God except Allah and that Muhammad is a messenger of Allah. That is the first point of failure. There can be no faith without the submission, without the verbal testimony. So the first condition is that a person, the first pillar of religion is that a person bears testimony that there is no God except Allah and that the Prophet Muhammad is a messenger of Allah. In fact, even the Quran says this that the condition of Islam is that one does not make a distinction between the messengers and the leader of all the messengers, as, men, as understood and believed by the Muslims, is the Prophet Muhammad. So first is the testimony, then the very first pillar of Islam. In fact, the word pillar has actually been mentioned in some of the hadith. That Islam is built on five, on these are the pillars of Islam, the aim. This word is actually mentioned in some of the hadith. So the second pillar of Islam is salah. That is the most important. It's something we have five times a day. Zakah is once a year. Hajj 
is only if a person has the means and the ability. Ramadan is once a year, but Salah is five times a day. And the emphasis on Salah is so severe, is so great, that just think of it this way, the method of Salah is not described anywhere in the Qur'an. There is no procedure outlined and detailed in the Qur'an of Salah. We gain all of our understanding about the procedure, the method and the manner of Salah from the Hadith. There is one Salah whose procedure is detailed in the Qur'an. But it's not your normal everyday Salah, it's a Salah of fear, Salatul Khawf. And this, these verses were revealed when the Sahaba عنهم, were in battle, they were in a state of war. So one can understand the significance of Salah, that the procedure of Salah is not mentioned anywhere in the Qur'an. The only place and time when it is mentioned is in relation to not your normal everyday Salah, but rather the Salah, Salatul Khawf. The Salah, the prayer of fear, which was exclusive when the Sahaba were on the battlefield and were vulnerable to attack. Even in such a state, the Sahaba were not to miss their prayer, but rather to divide themselves into two groups. One group stood behind the Messenger whilst he led them in prayer whilst the other group stood guard over them. Then, when the first group had prayed half of the prayer with the Prophet ﷺ, they retreated and assumed the watchful positions of the other group, and then the other group came and stood behind the Messenger ﷺ, and they prayed with him. So all of the Sahaba had the honor of praying their salah in congregation behind the Messenger But because they were in a state of battle, they had to actually divide their prayer whilst half of the group watched over the other. Then the Prophet completed his prayer. The Sahaba then completed their individual prayers. So that's the only prayer mentioned in the Qur'an in detail. That shows the significance of salah. That even under such pressing conditions, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not waive the obligation of prayer. And what can be then said about normal everyday salah? So, what qeem salah that you establish salah? What zakah and that you give zakah? Since zakah is a once a year obligation, it's something which is often overlooked. We forget, we delay it, we postpone it. We are unable to calculate it properly. We sometimes give less. We sometimes give more, which is good. But zakah is an obligation as great as salah. Even though it comes after. In more than... 30 places in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions salah and zakah together. They go hand in hand. And even though it's just once a year, this is obligatory zakah. It's a great obligation. 
a huge obligation, but it's actually quite neglected and overlooked because it comes only once a year. Therefore, we tend to become forgetful, neglectful, lazy, or sometimes, and it's rather sad, our love of wealth is so intense that we are able to pray Salah because it doesn't cost us, but we find it difficult to spend in the way of even though spending in the way of Allah, not just farad, obligatory zakah, but charity in general, is one of the most encouraged things. So much of Islam is about charity, 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 give, give, share, share. In Surah Al-Baqarah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, لَيْسَ الْبِرَّ أَن تُوَلُّوا وُجُوهَكُمْ قِبَلَ الْمَشْقِ وَالْمَغْنِبِ That... Virtue is not that you face the east or the west. This is a reference to prayer, formal prayer, that you face a qibla. That in itself is not just virtue. Rather, virtue is of that person, and then Allah mentions the articles of faith. Who believes in Allah and in the angels, the books, the messengers, the final day. Then Allah says, after belief, Allah says the first thing of virtue is that he gives wealth despite the love of wealth. He gives wealth despite the love of wealth because the love of wealth is embedded in every human being to some degree. But that's our sacrifice. We have to bite our tongue. We have to bite our lip. We have to fight ourselves. We have to overcome and struggle against the nafs and overcome the love of wealth and pinch ourselves. And with some pain, we have to spend. So virtue is of that person who, despite the love of wealth, gives. And then Allah mentions the categories of expenditure. Then later, Allah says, وَأَقَامُ الصَّلَاةُ وَآتَ الزَّكَاهِ He establishes salah and gives zakah. So is that a repetition? That Allah mentions spending as a first virtue, then mentions salah, and then mentions zakah. No. The zakah that's mentioned later is obligatory zakah. The first spend expenditure that Allah speaks of is voluntary, optional, nafil, charity. So even before farad zakah, Allah speaks about spending freely in the way of Allah as an option, not as an obligation. So the second pillar is and that you give zakah. Third is and that you fast the month of Ramadan. Again, surprisingly, alhamdulillah, at least this is something people do. They pray salah, they fast in the month of Ramadan because it's become such a, an ummah-wide, community-wide, society-wide, global thing, fasting in the month of Ramadan. But zakah does not seem to enjoy the same significance in some people's view as both salah and fasting in the month of Ramadan. Fasting is an obligation for the whole month. And then finally the Prophet ﷺ says, And that you perform the pilgrimage if you are able to find a way to it. The meaning of if you are able to find a way to it 
is similar to what's mentioned in the Qur'an, that if he can find a path to it, which means that Salah is obligatory on everyone, fasting is obligatory on everyone, there are a few exceptions for both Salah, there are more exceptions for fasting. But Zakah and Hajj only become obligatory when a certain number of conditions are met. So, fasting is obligatory from the outset, but there are concessions. So some people are excused. Prayer is obligatory from the outset, but there are concessions. Some people, fewer than fasting, are excused. But zakah doesn't become obligatory from the outset. It only becomes an obligation when a person meets certain conditions. Similarly with hajj, it's never obligatory from the outset on an individual. It only becomes obligatory when a number of conditions are met. And the conditions for the obligation of hajj are far greater, far more numerous and stringent than the obligations of zakah. So only if you are able to find a path. So you have to have sufficient wealth, you have to have the ability, the means, and the path also has to be clear all the way till the Kaaba, the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for Hajj to become obligatory. If there is a security risk, for instance, Hajj is not an obligation for those people whose path is obstructed. So, only if you are able to find a path. So here, this part of the Hadith covers the five pillars of Islam. But, we learn from other narrations of the same hadith that the Prophet ﷺ also mentioned other things, such as Umrah, that you perform the Umrah. And then even basic things, such as that you complete your wudu. In the same narration of Jibreel ﷺ, that you complete your wudu. Another thing, that you do your ghusl of janabah, that you perform your ritual bath, as a result of major ritual impurity. This is actually mentioned in the Hadith of Jibreel. What this means, and what that shows, is that Islam isn't just about the major aspects of religion. In fact, in all of the Hadith, the Prophet ﷺ has described a Muslim as being someone who does this, 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 this. Islam as being something in which this is done, this is done, this is done. And some of the things are very basic. In one hadith, Prophet said, spoke about Islam, and he says, someone asked Islam, what is Islam, what's the best Islam? In one of the hadith, Prophet says, that you Islam is that you feed people food. You feed people. Not just giving charity, you feed. There's a difference between the two. It's very easy to drop a few coins in a bucket and desensitize and detach yourself, detach yourself from the charity. This is why charity in Islam is about sharing. It's not about just simply giving. It's about sharing. You will never attain virtue, righteousness, piety until you spend of that which you love. 
Now, we don't just love money. We love our leisure, our free time, our privacy, our comforts. Islam teaches us that we don't just give some money and forget. Drop and forget, give and forget. Rather, that we share of that which we love. We go out of our way. So here the Prophet says, Islam is that you feed people food. Because there's a clear difference. Imagine the effort in feeding people. Not just dropping a few coins in a bucket. Or even wiring some money over to someone. That's very easy. True charity is that you become involved. As the Prophet says, you feed people. And when you feed people, you go through a great effort. You cook, you purchase the items, you acquire things. You go through great trouble to shop, to obtain, to gather, to prepare, to cook, to prepare the house, to welcome someone. When they come, you take out all your time to do that. You welcome them, you show great hospitality. And the Arabs were famous for their hospitality. They really were. And alhamdulillah, till this day, that trait has remained in the Arabs. That trait of hospitality has remained in the Arabs, the true Arabs. And that's been, that was the case in the days of Jahiliyyah. They would say that even if an enemy arrived at someone's tent, their custom and their protocol dictated that they would not refuse them food. Even an enemy. So you prepare food, you invite them into your home, you give of your time, you spend of your leisure, you share, you eat, you you enjoy the company, you give them of your company. This whole experience is what Islam encourages. Selfishness to this degree that we've all ended up in our own homes, eating alone, living alone, neighbours not knowing each other, neighbours hardly seeing each other except for the cursory glance and functional and perfunctory hello, how are you, good day, hi, bye. This isn't what Islam teaches. Islam teaches sharing. Sharing of that which we love. Not just giving a bit of money here and there. That's charity. So here the Prophet says, Islam, what's the best Islam? Islam is that you feed people food. And then he said, and that you say salam, you offer your greetings. To all of those that you recognize, as well as those that you don't recognize. Spread salam freely. Yes, salam means peace. That means peace. And you sp- spread the word of peace and the spirit of peace to everyone. Those you know, those you don't know. Those whom you recognize, those who you don't recognize. Salam is so important. Allahu Akbar. Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would say salam to children. 
groups of children playing, he would pass by them and loudly say salam to them. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa That was to children. One can just imagine how the children would have replied to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa So, that is part of Islam. In another hadith, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa says, Who is a Muslim? Al-Muslim man salim al-Muslimuna min lisanihi wa A Muslim is one from whose hands and from whose tongue other Muslims remain safe. That is Islam. Islam isn't just about salah and zakah and hajj and fasting. Islam is complete. Allah says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amunu dhkhuru fi silmi kaaffa wa la tattabi'u khutuwaati shaytaan innahu lakum adun mubeen. O believers, embrace Islam completely, totally, and do not follow in the footsteps of shaytaan. Verily, he is your clear enemy. And part of his deception is that he prevents you and misleads you and misguides you and prevents you from embracing Islam completely. So you begin to think that Islam is just about the functional, formal, ritual acts of worship. As long as I pray my salah, give my zakah, fast, and I perform the hajj, umrah, alhamdulillah, my connection with the Creator is complete. Regardless of how I behave with others. No. Prophet sallallahu says in this hadith, related by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim, from Abdullah ibn Amr ibn Aas radiyallahu anhumah, al-Muslimu man saliman muslimuna min lisanihi wa yadih. The Muslim is one from whose tongue and from whose hands other Muslims remain safe. And the remarkable thing is, which one comes first? A Muslim is one from whose hand other Muslims remain safe from his tongue. The tongue comes first. Min lisanihi From whose tongue and from his hand, other Muslims remain safe. That's a true Muslim. That is a Muslim. So Islam is about all of the teachings of religion. Whether it's to do with ensuring that other people remain safe. Not just safe in terms of they don't fear you. But rather, you give them peace, you give them peace of mind. A Muslim is one who gives his fellow Muslim total peace of mind. Reassuring them that you do not have to fear any harm from me, neither by my hand or by my tongue. That's a Muslim. And that he feeds people, feeds food. He gives, he shares. He says salam to everyone. All of this is part of Islam. And then, in the same narration of this hadith, Prophet also says that Islam is, that you do umrah, and what else? That you perform the ghusl of janabah. That you perform your ghusl as a result of major ritual impurity, and that you complete your wudu, what this means is that Islam is ensuring that you remain pure outwardly. You remain in a state of purity. That when you do wudu, you don't rush your wudu. We may think this is trivial. We may think this is trivial. But outward purity will ensure inner purity. 
Cleanliness is part of Islam. Cleanliness is part of religion. The cleanliness of one's surroundings, one's appearance, one's clothes. And one should never misunderstand. We've learned from some ahadith that the Sahab, some of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum were simple. And the Prophet says that simplicity is part of Iman. So how do we reconcile these two concepts? One of hygiene, cleanliness, orderliness. And yet, on the other hand, we also know of some people, as the Prophet says, there are many who are disheveled, unkempt, covered in dust. People drive them away from the doors, yet... If they were to swear in the name of Allah, Allah would not allow their oath to go unfulfilled. So how do we reconcile the two? It's very simple. All of these people that the Prophet is speaking of, who are humble, simple, covered in dust, disheveled, unkempt, they are those people whose hearts and minds are totally detached from the dunya. Totally. They are in their own world. And that world is one in which they are connected with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They are not to blame. They are not at fault. They are genuinely detached from the world. They are unconscious of the world. They truly are unconscious of the world. They don't know who or what's happening. Who is who around them, what's what. Their gaze is on the akhirah. And they genuinely are totally detached. And there are a few select individuals who are of that nature, of that caliber. But apart from these exceptions, for the rest of us, who are grounded, who are conscious and aware of what's happening around them, for the rest of us, indeed, cleanliness, hygiene, orderliness, all of this is part of Iman. Since we are conscious. And... Like Salman al-Farsi radiyallahu anhu. He was walking past some people in the marketplace in Persia. And they commented on his clothes. And they spoke in a manner that he couldn't understand. But his companions, he said to them that, what did they say? So they told him, Salman al-Farsi did not become, he wasn't offended, he didn't become angry. His reply was, the akhirah is far better. That's all he was concerned about, the akhirah is far better. So apart from some, for the rest of us, hygiene, cleanliness and orderliness and outward purity is... <coughs> One of the conditions of Islam, we must ensure outward external ritual purity. Imam Bukhari and others all relate the hadith, Prophet passed by two passed by two graves. The occupants of the graves were both both being punished. And the Prophet words were he stopped with the companions and he said, they are not being punished for something great, i.e. that people do not think it's great, they are great. 
As for one of them, he would not save or protect himself from urine, i.e. the spray of urine. When a person passed urine, passes urine, the spray, the drops of urine, if they reach one's body, one's clothes, and remain on there, then that is a sign of carelessness. If that happens inadvertently, without knowledge, that's different. But if it's done out of carelessness, in fact, and although it's commonly believed that you should, uh, of course, the Prophet ﷺ used to sit down whilst passing urine, while answering the call of nature, that is true. But if need be, and that's what we follow too, but if need be, it's entirely permissible to stand up and pass urine. Entirely permissible. If the circumstances demand. For instance, if you go to a public place and you are fearful that sitting down will not ensure as much purity as standing upward. And that you are fearful that if you sit down, this will lead to the polluting of your clothes and the polluting of your body by urine or by the impurity which is already there, then it's entirely permissible, and there should be no reservation or hesitation in this, that you stand up and urinate. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ did it. In the hadith of Hudayfah, it's mentioned by most authors that the Prophet ﷺ came to a pit, a rubbish pit, and he stood and he urinated. So the ulama have to explain why he did that. And one of the most simple explanations is that because it was a rubbish, it was a rubbish pit, it was an area where there was impurity and filth already present, the Prophet ﷺ stood up to ensure that there would be no ill effects of impurity on him. So that, that in itself is a sunnah of Rasulullah If the circumstances demand, then a man can stand up and urinate. Why is that done? To ensure that one's clothes and body are not polluted. Because that in, this is extremely vital. External purity is essential. So here the Prophet says part of Islam is that you complete your wudu. Imam Nasa'i relates a hadith in his sunan. That one day in Fajr Salah, the Prophet led Salah. And we learn from other narrations too that he was reciting Surah Al-Rum. And the Prophet experienced difficulty in the Qira'ah in Salah. So after Salah, he turned around and he said, O oh people, when you come to the masjid, then make sure you do, you make your good your wudu. Make sure you make good your wudu. Your wudu. Complete it. For some of you are not completing your wudu. And what happened? The Prophet ﷺ says, I'm thinking to myself, why am I struggling with the Qur'an? Why am I struggling with the Qur'an? It's because some of you do not complete your wudu. SubhanAllah. That means someone in the congregation failed to complete and make good their wudu. 
as a result, not only were they affected, in fact, this had an impact on the Messenger وسلم, the Imam, the recipient of Wahi and Revelation, that even his Qira'ah in Salah was affected. This is a world that we do not understand. External purity has an impact on one's inner purity. External impurity leads to inner impurity. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ also said that you do ghusl of janabah. Although it's permissible to remain in a state of impurity for a short while, it's entirely permissible. Like Abu Hurairah once in the morning, the Prophet said to him, Assalamu alaikum. So Abu Hurairah quickly stole away. And then the Prophet met him later. He said, Oh, Abu Hurairah, why? So he said, Ya Rasulullah, I was in a state of ritual impurity, Janaba. So I did not want to say salam to you in that state. So the Prophet said, Indeed, the believer does not become impure. I, you are not so impure that you can't give salam or you can't make dua. So it's permissible to remain in a state of impurity for a short while, but it's not encouraged. And obviously before the salah, one has to be in a state of purity for salah and for other acts of ibadat. So part of Islam is to ensure one's external purity. I end with this. This is the first part of the hadith that Islam is these things, but not just the pillars of Islam, but Islam is much more. And I, there are so many ahadith, so many verses of the Quran which speak about different aspects of Islam. The main thing we need to remember is that Islam isn't just about the major acts of worship, it's about even the smallest of things. The Prophet ﷺ has emphasized. Ritual purity, wudu as being part of Islam, giving people salam, feeding people. All of this is Islam. And all of this that we have discussed so far in just the first part of the hadith is about external Islam. Because that's what ultimately Islam is externally. As far as iman is concerned, which is the inner part, the inner faith, that is something else, and inshallah we'll discuss that in the remainder of the hadith in the next session. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand.